0: Well, why don't you take your Bible and open to the book of Malachi? As you turn there, I want you to know that I know that it's the Sunday before Christmas. And it's not by accident that we are in Malachi today. I am willing to admit it is not the most Christmassy book of the Bible. I'll concede that. But at the same time, it is a good place for us as we prepare our hearts for Christmas and And here's why. What I want to help us to see during our time in Malachi is that this book is a book about God's faithfulness to unfaithful people. It's a book in which God is coming to sinful people and showing them their sin and warning them about the consequences of their sin. But at the the same time, what we see is, is God's care for sinners. We have a reminder here in Malachi that while we sin, God has a plan to save sinners. That's what the book of Malachi is about. And isn't that what Christmas is about? It's about God's love for sinful people. And we have reminders here that... God is faithful to undeserving and unfaithful people. If you've been with us, then you'll remember how the book begins. The book begins with a declaration of love from God for his people. It starts this way. You can look back across the page to Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. It begins with God saying, I have loved you. That's the opening statement from God. Reminding his people of his covenant love for them. A love that is unearned, it's undeserved, it's unconditional, it's unending. God is speaking to people whom he loves. But then as we keep reading, we see that these people who God has uh, called and set his love on are an apathetic, complacent, and disobedient people. This book is written to a people who are, are waiting for the coming of Christ. And in that way, we have a lot in common with them, don't we? They, they had the promise of, of Christ's coming. They're waiting for God to keep his promises, and that's our story too. We are a people who have the promise that, that Christ is coming, and we are waiting for his coming. And yet, what we see about the people that Malachi is writing to is that they weren't waiting well. What we see is that in their waiting for God to keep his promises, they're struggling. See, their, their lives aren't going the way they think it should. They've been in exile and they, they, they came back to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple, but things weren't as they thought they would be. They thought when we go back to Jerusalem, God's going to do all the things that he said he's going to do, and they've come back and it's not that yet. They feel like God's abandoned them. They're starting to think that God has forgotten his promises. We've talked about this progression over the last couple of times in Malachi. They doubt God's care for them. Their doubt leads to complacency. Their complacency leads to disobedience. That's a common progression, isn't it? Maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe he's not really doing what he said he's going to do. And what we saw in their case is worship became half-hearted and complacent. And then it leads us to all these other forms of disobedience. And so what we see as we read through most of Malachi is he's pointing out the ways that they've been unfaithful. He's warning God's people about the consequences of their unfaithfulness. But at the same time, we have this thread that runs throughout the entire book. Reminders of God's love. Because why would he come to them and call them back if not because of his love for them? We have reminders in Malachi of God's faithfulness to unfaithful people. So as we pick up this morning where we left off, we have God continuing to point out the ways that his people have been unfaithful let me kind of give you a road map of where we're headed this morning. We're going to cover a lot of ground. It's a big section of the book. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 10. We're going to go all the way to chapter 3, verse 12. It's actually not one section, but probably three sections. But I'm going to try to only preach one sermon, okay? But, but we could easily divide it into three parts, And what we have here are three indictments or charges from God towards his people. Three ways that he's pointing out that they have been unfaithful to him. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of move pretty quickly through the passage. And I want to show you these three charges that God is bringing against his people. Then we're going to go back and I want to help us see how God responds to them in their unfaithfulness. And then we will end by considering what this passage says about how we should think about ourselves and how we should think about God. So we're going to cover a lot of ground, but I hope that by the end we'll see this, that even as sinners, we have hope in Christ and that we should live in light of that hope. It's going to be a little different than normal. Normally I, I like to read the whole passage for you, but it's, it, it's long. So we're just going to read it as we go. Like I said, we're going to start by looking at these three indictments, these charges from God. And so we'll start reading in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. There we read, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So here we're, we're introduced to this first indictment, this charge from God against his people about yet another way they've been unfaithful. And this first one that we're looking at this morning has to do with marriage relationships and the fact that the people were were misusing and abusing the covenant of marriage. And it's happening in a couple of different ways. The first thing we see is that there are people who are marrying outside of the covenant community, which is something that God prohibited If you know the Old Testament, you know that that God had had formed this people for himself. He'd made a covenant with his people. He had promised to save them and to bless them as a people. We see that highlighted in in verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? And we read that. We shouldn't read that as a a statement about the the fatherhood of all, that God's father of all. That's not what he's talking about here. And he's not talking about the fact that God created every person. This is specific to Israel. They're saying, as a nation, don't we have one father? We all are are his, and he created, he formed us as a people. But here's the problem. There were some who were profaning that covenant. They are God's covenant people, but there were some who were profaning the covenant by going outside of the covenant community and taking wives from foreign lands. Verse 11, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. So instead of marrying women who are part of the covenant community, they're going outside of that community. And I'm going to say this probably a couple times today. We can't follow this all the way through. But I do want to at least say that this isn't about racism, it's not really about ethnicity. The sin wasn't necessarily that they were marrying women of other nations. The sin was that they were marrying women who worshipped other gods. They were marrying women who didn't know or love the one true God. And do you see how that's a problem? They are God's covenant people. And then to start bringing in people into that, that, that don't know God, who don't honor him, who don't see him as God, And then they they go on and they continue to live as if it's not a problem. He talks about the the profaning of the sanctuary. I think this ties back into what we saw in in chapter 1, where they're, they're going to worship and they're bringing lame animals and blind animals for sacrifices. They're going into their worship in a way that's not honoring to God. And I think what's implied here is, here's these men who are not being true to God. They're bringing in wives who don't know or honor God, and yet what are they doing? They're going to the temple. They're, they're worshiping. They're acting like this is normal. That's the first part of this indictment. He goes on. He says, verse 13, a second thing you do. Now, this isn't the second indictment, but the second part of the first one, so just don't get you ahead of us. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? You see what's going on? They're, they're going, they're recognizing God's not blessing us. He's not receiving our worship. And they're saying, why? And he says there in verse 14, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenants. So this is the second part of the situation. See, not only were these men going out and taking women as wives from other nations, but it seems that before they did that, they had left their previous wives. They, they, they were married to, to women within the covenant community, but they, they, they divorced those women and have gone out and taking wives from other nations. Now, probably for economic reasons, for social reasons, um, this was a way of trying to, to become a part of this nation they're living in. When they were in Babylon, what we see is they're breaking covenant with God and one another. First, by divorcing their wives, and second, by marrying those of foreign lands. And what we see in this passage is that, in the eyes of God, this is no small thing. And it's no small thing because of the value that God places on the covenant of marriage, we see here is a people who have failed to recognize the significance that God places on this union. What we see in verse 13 is that the people are frustrated because God's withholding blessings. They're groaning. And the question is, why is God not showing them favor? And he says there, God's not pleased because you aren't keeping your covenant. These are vows that were made before God, binding two people together. We have in verses 14 and 15, there are allusions to Genesis chapter 2. Remember, after God creates Adam and Eve, he says, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What he's telling us is that in in marriage, this is more than a man made contract. It's a union formed by God. It's a a union first for companionship. We see that in verse 13. She is your companion. And then beyond that, she's your wife by covenant. He goes on, and we, we, we see this in the context of the, the nation of Israel. He says, this union was it's formed, it's companionship, it's a covenant, and it's for the purpose of godly offspring. He says, you know, this is how God is expanding his, his nation, the way he's working through his people. There's there's a lot we could unpack from these verses. But just to summarize it, we see here the sacredness of the marriage covenant. The big idea here is that God created and designed marriage to be protected and cherished. But what we have are people who are misusing and abusing it, even discarding it. You see this repeated word throughout this section. I think it's six times. They're called faithless. So we come to verse 15, and we have this command. He says, So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers her garment with, his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And then he repeats, So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. What we see is that God is clear about the value and the significance, the sacredness of marriage. But he's, he's, he's speaking to people here who are devaluing it, who are treating it like less than what it is. He's calling them out for their disregard. And so again, this is the, the first charge. There's there's a second one as we as we keep reading, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Now, again, these are people who have come to the conclusion that God is not caring for them well. They were in exile. They felt the discipline of God. They've become probably bitter and frustrated. And so here's what's happening. They're looking around, and they're seeing that there are other nations that are prospering. There are people who have no regard for God that seem to be better off than them. And so this is their complaint. Verse 17, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. You hear that complaint? It's the same kind of complaint we see. Several times in the Psalms, why do the wicked prosper? And and that's what they see here. It it seems that everyone who does good, does evil, is good in the sight of God. And yet here we are, as this is the implied thing here we are as the people of God, and He doesn't seem to delight in us. They ask the question where is the God of justice? If, If we're God's people and they're not, how come they're being blessed and we're not? They're questioning God, doubting his justice and judgment. And then there's a third indictment. So the first being that they're misusing and abusing marriage. The second being that they're doubting God's character. They're doubting that he's just and that he will judge the wicked. And then a third one starting in verse Chapter three, verse seven says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return to you? God asks, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Okay, again, context is needed here. God calls his people out of Egypt. He gives them a law, right, that that designates how they should live with one another, how they should live in relationship to him. There were laws that governed his worship, their worship. We talked about that quite a bit in chapter 1. There were laws that governed how they stewarded the things that had been given to them. And a part of this law system was the the commands for tithes and offerings. They were to bring part of their crops to, to give them to God, to bring part of their herd and to give it to God. Part of everything they had was to be given back to God. And as we think about the purpose of this law, there's a couple different purposes for this law. One is an act of worship, right? It's a way of acknowledging that God's the one who's given us all that we have. If we have crops, it's by his hand. If we have herds, it's by his hand. Everything we have is from him. And so this act of tithes and offerings, it's an opportunity for worship, right? To say, this wasn't ours. We didn't deserve any of this to begin with, but we give it a portion of it back to you in acknowledgement that you are the giver of all things, Of course, we see how that transfers over for us in our giving today. But that wasn't the only purpose of the tithes and offerings. There was also a very practical reason for it. The tithes and the offerings were taken and used to support the temple, to support the priests and the Levites, and also to care for the poor and the needy in the community. We could go and read about this in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, that these tithes and offerings were the the means that God used to support those who served in the temple, and those who were in need. So here's the indictment. God says to his people, you're robbing me. How are we robbing you? By withholding tithes and offerings. Now, we could dig further into this passage, and what we could recognize is, there at the end, verses, um, I think, 12, 13, 14, 14. Their crops weren't producing. Their herds weren't flourishing. And so what did they do? They pulled in. We don't have, so we won't give. And yet what we see in those verses is that God says, you don't have because you don't give. He's withholding blessing because they're not being faithful. Probably a temptation that we can understand, right? I know God's commands, but I'm not in the situation to keep those commands right now. Right? That's not how the commands of God work. We're called to obedience, to trust him that what he has called us to do is right. If we keep reading, we see God tells him, if you would be faithful, I would bless you. If you would give, I would ensure that you would have what you need. But as it stands, I will withhold my blessing and bring a curse on you because of your unfaithfulness. Again, another road we can't talk, go way down this morning. But what, what I do want to at least point out is that we can't jump into this passage and do what many have done and form a prosperity gospel, right? Where we give and God gives, we don't give and we don't have, right? We can go to other parts of the Scripture and realize some are very rich by the blessing of God, and that's not saying that they're disobedient. And there are some who are very obedient and very poor, That's by God's design as well. So we have to read the scriptures as a whole. At the same time, there is a principle here that God blesses those who are faithful, right? So we don't want to swing to extreme applications here, but we should walk away from this thinking God values obedience. And the indictment here is that these are people who are not being obedient to God. They're not being obedient in the way they're handling their relationships. They're not being obedient in their trust of God and His character. They're not being obedient in their their giving of tithes and offerings. So we've seen these three indictments. We got through this pretty quick, didn't we? should feel good. These three indictments. But here's what I want you to recognize, that These three indictments aren't actually indictments one, two, and three. They're actually indictments three, four, and five, because we've already looked at one and two. The first one being, I've loved you, but you say, how have we loved you? The second being that they were going to worship, but they were bringing animals and sacrifices that weren't pleasing to God. And then these are our third, fourth, and fifth. And then in the last section of Alchide, we'll see the sixth indictment. Six charges from God, against his people. And what is blaring to us throughout Malachi is, these are an unfaithful people. But if we read Malachi, perhaps Malachi, you know, I think it was a part of our actual annual reading last week or week ago. And I, I am guilty of this. We could come to Malachi and read through Malachi and think, bunch of sinful people. I'm glad we're going to Matthew next, Right? and all we could take from Malachi is these six indictments, this portrait of an unfaithful people. But if all we get from Malachi is the portrait of an unfaithful people, we have missed the point. This book, friends, is about the faithfulness of God to unfaithful people. I keep going back to the way the book begins, because I do think it's a foundation that should carry us through the book. God, before bringing these charges against his people, starts the book this way. I have loved you. Do you know how you can know that I loved you? I chose you and not your brother. talks about Jacob and Esau. You're my people. I love you. And then we get this in chapter 3, verse 6. There's a central verse to our time together this morning. It's this one. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you're not consumed. This may be one of the most important truths we have about God, period. God doesn't change, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, think about what we've seen up to this point in the book. These are the people of God who have his promises, and yet what they think, he's not being faithful to his promises. They feel like God has abandoned them. Yes, he's said he loved us in the past, but, but not now. We get to chapter 3, and he says, I don't change. I'm the same. They've doubted his consistency, and their doubt of his consistency, led them to unfaithfulness in their relationships. It led them to doubting his justice. It led them to withholding the tithes and offerings, to not keeping his commands, not living in obedience. And yet in in the midst of all their unfaithfulness, we have a God saying to his people, I love you and I don't change. I'm still pursuing you. I'm still keeping my promises to you. And and friend, I would just say to you, if you're here this morning and you are hyper aware today of your sin, and maybe you would be inclined to think that God has abandoned you, or maybe that he would not keep his promises to you, I just tell you, God doesn't change. His mercy is available. This is an important verse, but um, it's not good for us just to jump in and grab it. It's actually better for us to see what leads up to this verse. So let's go back to chapter 3, verse 1. And now you know where we're headed, but I want you to see how we get there. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says this. And this follows, where is the God of justice? He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fooler's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and the righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker. In his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the lords of hosts. There's a lot there. Let me just pull out one big idea to start with. The people are doubting God's justice. Where is the God of justice? And here God responds. Here's the quick version. There's a day coming when I will send the one I have promised, and when he comes, he will do two things: he will purify and save his people, and he will judge the wicked who oppose him. We have both these things in the verses I just read. Let's look at the second one first: God's judgment of the wicked. He's answering their question: "Where is the God of justice?" He says, I'm sending my messenger. He's coming. And when he comes, verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? We're told that God is sending one who will come in judgment of those who stand against him. As we head into the week of Christmas, we think about the first coming of Christ. He comes to make salvation available. But we know there is a second coming. And when he comes again, he will come to judge all who have rejected him. The Lord will judge the wicked. And by the way, that's the category we're all born into. And God's clear here about the nature and the extent of his judgment. He says in verse 5, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness. Against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear false, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who trust aside, thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. It's a warning. A day of judgment is coming. So they're asking, Is there judgment? He says, Yeah, I'm sending one. And when he comes, he will judge all those who oppose him. Then we get to verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is the really cool part of Malachi. He's promising that one will come who will bring justice. But when he comes, those who are his will not be consumed. And what we see here, and maybe you already recognize it, are the prophecies here, starting in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And for those of you who know the Scriptures well, you're thinking, that sounds familiar. That sounds a lot like Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And Malachi 3 is talking about the same preparer of Isaiah 40, We know about 450 years after this, there's a baby born named John. We know him as John the Baptist, and we read in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And we know that Malachi 3 is talking about the same person as Isaiah 40 and Matthew 3, because in Malachi 4, where we'll be next time we're in Malachi It makes this connection, okay? John the Baptist being sent to prepare the way. Now let's keep reading. Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's a first messenger who is John the Baptist. And then he says, the Lord is going to come after him. He's going to dwell in his temple the messenger of the covenant, and now this is a different messenger. We have three messengers now, okay? Malachi means messenger. John the Baptist is the messenger. And then there's the messenger of the covenants who is Christ. And he's coming to do two things outlined here for us, judging the wicked and purifying and saving a people for himself. And we get these verses 2, 3, and 4 that describe his coming. He's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Fuller means launderer, washer. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and purify the sons of Levi. Do you remember back in chapter one, the accusations against the sons of Levi? He says, I'm coming to purify my people to refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Remember what kind of offerings they were bringing in chapter 1? Lame and blind animals, unfit sacrifices. He said, I'm coming and I'm purifying my people to the extent that they will bring pure offerings. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. There's one coming, and who can stand when he comes? All those who are wicked will be judged. But there's a people, he says. When that fire comes, we'll be refined and purified. This is God's message to an unfaithful people. You wonder if justice is coming. Oh, justice is coming. I will send one, and who can stand on the day of his coming? Here's who can stand. Those who are mine. Because on that day, I will have purified for myself a people. It's the language of 1 Peter 1. He says there, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the Tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor when at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. I love that passage. Peter says God is doing a work in his people. He allows hardship and trials, and they come, but they do a work of purification. And that's the promise of God in Malachi 3 to an unfaithful people. Yes, I'm here, and I love you, and I am just, and I will bring justice. Those who don't trust him Will be consumed at his coming. But then there's another group who will not be consumed. Those for whom the fire of judgment is a fire of purification. And how can we know that he'll be faithful to save those who are his? For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you will not be consumed. I have loved you, says the Lord. And I don't change. It's a great assurance. On this week of Christmas, we look forward to the coming of Christ. We remember his first coming. And we know that because he came the first time and accomplished what he did, we can have hope that when he comes again, we will stand. This is a Christmas sermon, (laughs) right? What do we celebrate this week? We celebrate that because Christ came, when he comes, we will stand. We have hope, and friends, you don't deserve it because you're unfaithful just like these people, and so am I. We've been complacent in our worship. We've been unfaithful in our relationships. We've withheld from God what he is owed. We've questioned his character and doubted his faithfulness. And yet God is faithful to unfaithful people. So what do we do? First, friends we should not keep sinning so that grace can abound. When we see his kindness, it should lead us to repentance. And so as we work our way through Malachi, if you see yourself as that one who has questioned God's love, friend, repent. He'll forgive you. If you've become one who's complacent and bringing hypocritical worship, don't remain there. If you've been unfaithful in your relationships, if you've withheld things that are owed to God, if you see yourself a portrait of you in the lives of the original audience, friend, no. There's forgiveness available to you. We can be forgiven. And that's the promise we have because God is faithful. As we read the indictments of this book, as we recognize there are so many ways that we're guilty of the same kinds of unfaithfulness, it should make us thankful that God is faithful to the unfaithful. This is our hope. This is what we celebrate this week. And this is the hope that we must share. Praise God, He is faithful when we are not. He does not change. Let's pray.